Take your Bible, if you will, and turn with me to Exodus chapter 14. Exodus 14. And as you're finding your place there in Exodus, the second book of the Bible, I want to uh, open up with, a, I think, a, a good story. If you're uh, a basketball fan, perhaps you know the name Speedy Morris. If you know the name Speedy Morris, you probably know that he was a very successful high school basketball coach in the Philadelphia area for several years, and later on in his career became the head coach at LaSalle University. And there, he turned that program around, taking his teams to four straight NCAA tournaments. In fact, his 89-90 team finished the season that year with a record of 30 wins and two losses. They lost, I believe, in the second round of the tournament. And end of the year, ranked nationally for the first time in the program's history. And so he was a successful basketball coach there in Philadelphia. And one morning, Speedy was up in the bathroom shaving. And as he's up there shaving, getting ready for the day, his wife hollered up and said, Honey, Sports Illustrated is on the phone. And you can only imagine what a basketball coach like that would think about a phone call coming from Sports Illustrated. And so he got excited, and he got so excited, he got a little careless with a razor and cut himself. And he did what all of us guys do when we cut ourselves with a razor. We reach over and grab the toilet paper and start dotting your faces or other parts of your head area, maybe your neck, with uh, toilet paper. So he's doctoring himself with that. He's ecstatic that Sports Illustrated's on the phone. And all the time he's thinking about what this is meaning for him. He's like, I can't believe this. Here I have turned this program around. Things are going really, really well for us. And so Sports Illustrated's now calling me. They want to talk to me. They want to write an article up on me. Maybe even put me on the cover of Sports Illustrated magazine. He's sitting there thinking to himself, my career is about to take off. And so he bolts out the bathroom door. He heads down the steps, taking two steps at a time. Halfway down the staircase, he falls, tumbles all the way to the bottom of the stairs gets up on his knees and painfully crawls over. It's back in the day, we probably didn't have cell phones everywhere. Uh, Crawls over, picks up the receiver on the phone, and when he picked it up, he said, Sports Illustrated, with such excitement and enthusiasm in his voice. And on the other end of the line, a voice said, Yes, sir, and for 75 cents an issue, you can have a whole year's (laughs) supply. It's a funny story, and I heard it this past week. But I wonder how many of us have been disappointed like that in our own lives. How many times in our own life have you thought something big was about to happen and yet it turned out to be nothing more than a colossal disappointment? And you're just, I mean, it's like the air's been sucked out of your life because of disappointment. As we turn to Exodus 14, this is exactly where the people of God find themselves. They're in the midst of disappointment. Things are going well for them. If you know the story of the Exodus, they've just left Egypt. God, their devastated Pharaoh using ten different different plagues to, to show his power and his sovereignty over the gods of Egypt. He demonstrated that he was the one true God. And the gods of Egypt, Pharaoh himself, was nothing more than refuse under his feet. God, in essence, through those ten plagues, caused Pharaoh to tap out. And so things were so bad that the end of that tenth plague, which is the plague of, of death, the firstborn of every uh, family, every, every animal was to die during that plague. And so at the end of that, Pharaoh taps out. He takes Moses and Aaron, brings them before him and says, Moses and Aaron, I want you to get out of this place. I want you to take your people. I want you to take your flocks. I want you to get your herds and get out of here. 
The Bible tells us there in Exodus chapter 12 that the people of Egypt wanted Israel to leave so quickly and so desperately that they allowed them, the Jews, to take anything and everything they wanted as long as they left. And so the Bible tells us that God caused Israel to plunder Egypt in their egress. So they're riding high on this wave of, of excitement and enthusiasm about all that God has done for them. They're marching out. They're headed to the promised land. They're going to experience all that was promised to them through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so they're riding this wave of momentum. And then all of a sudden, as God led them to the banks of the Red Sea, things begin to change. As God is leading them out there to the Red Sea, leading them through these paths, and they probably just thought, this is the journey I need to be on. God's delivered us, and so everything's going to be easy from here on out. And so as God is leading the people of Israel, God is simultaneously hardening the heart of Pharaoh. He begins to realize, hey, what I've done is wrong. I've let the people go. Our economy is going to suffer. We need to get them back. So God hardens the heart of Pharaoh, and he determines within his own heart that he must go out and capture the Jews and re-enslave them in his empire. And he looks at their situation, and he sees that it looks like they're just wandering through the wilderness, going in places that are not even on the right path to go back to the land of Canaan. And so one afternoon, as we come to Exodus chapter 14, verse 10, We see that one afternoon as the people of Israel were still celebrating their victory, as they were still singing those victorious songs, they looked up and saw on the horizon an army marching against them. So look with me, verse 10. We're going to read through the end of the chapter. I'm going to come back, share some faith principles with you, and give you three thoughts to gain from this text this morning. Verse 10, Moses says this. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. The people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, is it, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not we said to you in Egypt, leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. You've got to keep in mind here, they were slaves in Egypt, and yet they still make this statement. That, is, that we're going to see in this passage that when fear grips your heart, you no longer are rational. You no longer have logic, much less spiritual logic in your lives. Verse 13, and Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you and you only have to be silent. The Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians, so they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. There was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night, 
and made the sea dry land, and waters were divided. The people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on the right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning watched the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud, looked down on the Egyptian forces, and threw the Egyptian forces into panic, clogging their chariot wheels. So they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, Let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. It's interesting that the enemy recognizes God's activity when the people of God might not have recognized his activity as well. Verse 26, then the Lord said to Moses, stretch your hand over the sea that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed him into the sea. Not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. This morning we are in week three of a four-week series that we've simply entitled, He Will. Over these four weeks, we're looking at this biblical concept of trust, what it looks like, what it means to trust the Lord in our lives. And what we're learning here, and what I hope that we will learn this morning, is that no matter what's going on in your life, no matter what's going on in your family, no matter what's going on in your finances, your career, whatever it may be, we learn here that God can always be trusted. In the most difficult times of life, God can be trusted. He is the God who empowers us. He is the God who provides for us. He is the God, as we see here in this text, who protects us. Even when life is difficult, difficulties that he allows to come into us or onto us, he protects us in them. And we're also going to see that he is the God who's present every step of the way. And so our responsibility is simply to trust. That's what Moses tells the people. Stand firm, fear not, and watch God be God. This experience of Moses and the people of Israel here teaches us that our God is not passive. I think sometimes we wonder if God is is involved in our lives at all. God, where are you? I I was uh, ironing clothes this morning, getting ready to, to, to come to church, and I'm watching Fox News, and they had Father Jonathan on there as always, and it's a Sunday morning, so they're asking him questions about where is God in a hurricane? I think sometimes when we go through those types of storms, we wonder, where is God in all of this? He's right there. He's walking with you through it if you are a child of God. Many times, as we see all throughout the Bible, he's the one who allows it to come into your life so that he can show you his glory, his power, and where you are at. Spiritually, that's one of the things that I hope that we see this morning. Our God is not a passive God. He does not idly watch from afar. No, the Bible over and over declares that He is the God who is near. The Bible tells us in Psalm 46.1 that He is an ever-present help in times of trouble. See, God fights for His people. And we see here that He will protect. 
He will protect us in the midst of the storm. And so before we look at the, the, the part of this passage where God is protecting his people, I want us to understand some things about faith. Last week I gave you three or so faith principles. I want to do the same this morning. Just some, some things about faith that I believe it's important that we understand for our own personal lives, for our family, for our church. First thing I want you to see here is this. God's way is the best way. God's way is the best way. If we were to go back to chapter 13, verses 17 and 18, we see here that, that the Bible says, when Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines. That is, a, a path to the north that would have taken them to Canaan. No, he says, for God says, lest the people change their minds, I'm not going to lead them that way, but God led the people, it says in verse 18, around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea, and the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. The Bible tells us here right off the bat, before they even get to Pharaoh chasing them down at the Red Sea, God is telling us something here. He's saying, my way is the best way. It may not make sense. To you, it may not seem logical to you. It may seem windy and long and hilly, but it's the absolute best thing for you in your life. We tend to think the shortest route is the best route. Now, if I'm taking a trip with my family or anyone else, I'm taking the short route. We're, we're taking some senior adults tomorrow to Gatlinburg. I've already looked at it. I know exactly where we're going to go. It's the shortest route, right? We're going to hit the interstates. We're not going to go back roads. We're taking the shortest route. We want to get there as quick as possible and with the least amount of traffic as possible. But when God's in charge of our lives and leading us down his path for us, many times the course doesn't seem to be the best course for us. And so the, the shortest route is oftentimes the worst route for us in our lives. Here we learn that rather than leading Israel on the northern road that would take them through the land of the Philistines, he led them to the southeast. And he did this because the shortest route would have been too difficult for their weak faith. Facing the Philistines in battle would have caused them to shrink back and run back to Egypt. And so God needs to take them a little bit further, step by step, to develop their faith so that they eventually can conquest the land. But he's got to take them on a little bit longer of a journey. They needed to learn to trust the Lord one day at a time. And he does the same thing for us. You see, God liberates us and, and then he leads us through the varied experiences of life. And he does it daily, one day at a time. So that we might get to know him better. And so that we can claim by faith all that he wants us to have. At the same time, we come to know ourselves better. You see, as we're on this journey, we not only get to know the Lord better, we get to understand ourselves better. We see where our weaknesses are. We see where our lack of faith resides. We discover our strengths. We see our weaknesses, and we grow in understanding of God's will as well as trusting in His promises. We need to remember that our God is good, and He plans the best way for you to take in life. It may take longer, it may have a few more hills and valleys than you prefer, but you can always know that the road he has you on in life is for your good. Now sometimes our life, the road that we're on, is not a path he's chosen for us. It's because we're walking in sinfulness, it's because we're walking in rebellion, but if you're seeking God, if you're walking in faithfulness, you're striving to be all that he would have you to be, sometimes that path is not what you would prefer, but it's what's best. It's got its pitfalls, or I should say its difficulties, its struggles, and its hardships, but it's for your good. Here's a statement that I put out this week on social media just as I was preparing. 
I like this statement. If you permit the Lord to direct your steps, expect to be led occasionally on paths that may seem unnecessarily long and difficult. God oftentimes takes us on the long cut. God's ways are the best ways. Secondly, God's way ensures God's presence. We are on the the verses 21 and 22. We see here that the pillar of cloud guided the nation of Israel during the day and that pillar of cloud turned into a pillar of fire at night and it lit lit them up and it was it represented his presence in their midst. In fact, as we read the story of the Exodus, we oftentimes see that God not only directed their path and led them through this pillar of cloud, but he also spoke to them through this pillar protected them from the, the heat of the sun as they journeyed during the day, and he protected them, even here in chapter 14, from their enemies. See, what was light for Israel, it's interesting in verse 20, what was a light for Israel was darkness to the Egyptians. Did you catch that as we read it? What was good for the Egyptians, was, or good for the Jews, was bad for the Egyptians. And today God guides us. He may not manifest his presence in the form of a pillar. And in fact, if you've had God direct you and guide you in life as a pillar of cloud or a pillar of fire, I want to become your friend really, really good. I mean, close friends, because I want to be in that Shekinah-type glory. But I've never met a person that's had that sort of experience. And to be honest, I'm not sure we need that sort of experience today because we have a whole canon of Scripture. We have a completed word from God to us. God has spoken, thus we know how to live, where we're to go, and we're simply to obey what God has said by faith, trusting that he's a good God. This is his presence in our life. In addition to that, the Bible tells us that we have the presence of the Holy Spirit residing within us to teach us and to guide us into all truth. God's way ensures his presence. Lastly, God's way is often not the easiest way come to the first four chapters of chapter 14, you see here that the path that God led them on was not the easiest path. It was a path of difficulty. It was a path that was uh, part of the wilderness. God led them to the, through the wilderness to the edge of the Red Sea. In fact, the path that God led Israel on is what convinced Pharaoh that he could go out there and recapture the Jews. They, they seemed to him to be nothing more than lost sheep wandering around in the wilderness. And so he thought they would be easy prey. And as God led the people of Israel, he led them and boxed them in with the Red Sea to their backs and Pharaoh to their chest. In fact, you can look at it this way. God used Israel as bait in the trap. God's drawing out Pharaoh so that he can conquer him once and for all. And so that all of Egypt and all of the watching world at that time would look at them and say, Israel's God is God. There is no other God above Israel. So we need to remember here that God created you and I for the sake of his glory. And he oftentimes will lead us down difficult paths so that he might show his power in our lives and thus receive great glory. This is what God did all throughout the scriptures. You look at the, the, the story of Job there and you see in chapters 1 and 2 when the, when the devil is parading back and forth in the throne room of heaven, God asks him what's going on down there and he's just kind of in his haughty spirit, just kind of uh, prancing around, declaring his own glory and God says, have you considered my servant Job? There's none like him. He's humble and he fears me. And he allows Satan to create a storm in his life. And it was very difficult for Job. But through all that, Job not only grew in his faith, but the Lord received great glory as he remained faithful. 
You look at the, uh, the story that we've looked at the last couple of weeks. We see in, in uh, Abraham's life and how God did difficult things through him. All throughout the scripture we see this, that God leads his people through difficult times so that he would receive glory as a result. God's way is often not the easiest, but it's always the best, and it always has the promise of his presence. I've got a friend, a family friend, uh, a family that are my friends. Uh, we used to serve together uh, years ago in my home church, and their son is 15, 16 years old. He was diagnosed with brain cancer, I believe, as a six-year-old. He's had two or three relapses, and, and they've just recently uh, just kind of said, you know what, he's in the Lord's hand. No more treatment, no more anything, and we're just we're trusting the Lord in this. When it's his time to go, it's his time to go. And, and through this whole ordeal, as I watch it from afar and talk to him occasionally, my heart aches and yearns for them because of the suffering and the pain and the anguish. And yet, at the same time, there is so much hope in Titus, the 16-year-old boy, who knows that his days are numbered, but he's going to live them to his fullest until the last day. It's a hard, difficult thing, but the Lord is faithful in every step of the way. And so they've been a great testimony to the Lord's faithfulness, a great testimony of what it means to keep your eyes on Jesus. God's ways are hardly ever the easiest ways, but they're always the best. Moses and Israel here are presented with a great opportunity to trust the Lord, to see his protection. And so they looked up from the beach and they saw Pharaoh heading their way. How were they to respond is what we need to be asking ourselves. How should they have responded? How would we respond in a situation with that? How was God going to respond to them? There's three things that I want to share with you this morning. Uh, as quickly as possible. First thing is this. As we think about God's protection and we think about uh, fear, the natural response of the flesh is to fear. That's what we see here in verses 10, 11, and 12. Pharaoh draws near to the people. They see him marching, and the people greatly feared, verse 10 says. And they cried out to the Lord. And you need to understand this crying out to the Lord is not crying out for the Lord's deliverance. It is crying out in anguish and absolute terror because there's nothing to protect them. It's not a faithful uh, crying out to the Lord. It's none of that stuff. In fact, that's indicative by the fact that they begin to complain in verses 11 and 12 to Moses. Why did you bring us out here, Moses? We told you to leave us alone, Moses. Why can't we just go back to Egypt, Moses? It would be better for us to be slaves than be dead in the wilderness. So what was Israel fixing their eyes upon? It wasn't the Lord. It was themselves. And as long as the Israelites kept their eyes on the fiery pillar and followed the Lord, what we see here is they were walking by faith and no enemy could touch them. But this, at the same time, when they took their eyes off of the Lord and they put them on their situation, on their circumstances, immediately they have no protection in their life. And they looked back and saw the Egyptians getting near. The Bible tells us they became frightened and began to complain. And so these verses introduce the disappointing pattern that was so natural for the people of Israel as we go on in generations. When things were fine and easy, they typically would obey the law and they would typically obey Moses. But there, if there was any trial, any discomfort in their circumstances, they immediately began to complain and sought to return to Egypt. Does that sound familiar at all? How many times in our own life, when things are going great, man, we're in church, things are wonderful, we sing songs, we're here, we're committed, but the least, meant, the least amount of, of difficulty, and all of a sudden, 
we pull back. We start asking questions. Where is God in this, in this situation? Where is God in my life? Why has he abandoned me? He's not abandoning you at all. It could be that he's using difficulties to really teach you about your level of spirituality. could be that he's using a difficult situation to test you, to try you, to develop you. So they complained. It's amazing how easily their memories were erased of all the demonstrations of God's great power. You've got to remember here, they're just a few days away from seeing the ten plagues played out before them. Water turned into blood, gnats everywhere, frogs everywhere, fire, hailstones railing down from heaven, the death angel coming and killing the firstborn of all of Egypt. They've seen all of that. And the first thing they do in response to this army is fear. Moses, why have you brought us out here? Why have you brought us out here? See, the natural response of the flesh is to fear. It's to look at our circumstances. It's to look at ourselves in relation to those circumstances. And immediately the, 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 the equation is, is calculated and we realize we have nothing to do with the situation. We cannot overcome the situation. We are nothing but gnats in their eyes, grasshoppers in their eyes, as the Jews will later say in Numbers chapter 14 when they look at the Philistines, the people in the land of Canaan. Faith is replaced with fear, and fear is the natural response of the flesh. Second thing I want us to see is this. The spiritual response of faith is to trust. So the natural response of fear, or or, of the flesh, is to fear, but the spiritual response of faith is to trust. Verse 13, Moses says to the people, here's the command. Fear not, stand firm, and watch. Watch God be God. Trust Him. Stand quietly by and don't squirmish, don't complain, don't murmur, don't grumble, don't do anything. Shut your mouth, stand still, and watch God be God. That's what we need to do in our own lives. When it's hard, just be quiet. And if you're going to talk, talk to the Lord and trust Him. You see, Moses here was a man of faith. He knew Pharaoh was no match for God. He remembered. He, he could still think clearly and have a spiritual heart and a spiritual mind. He, he remembered how God had victoriously, just a few days earlier, led them out of bondage from Egypt. And so he commands the people three simple things. Fear not, stand firm, and, and see the salvation of God. God was the one who was going to fight for them. He was the one who was going to protect them. They only had to be silent and to watch. And it takes faith to be silent in the midst of the storm. We've all seen and been around people when the times get really tough in their life, man, they get chatty catty, right? They're talking to everybody about the situations in their life. And I'm not saying there's something wrong with that necessarily, but if you talk more to your friends and your family or even your pastor than you talk to the Lord about your struggles, there's something wrong with your faith. You don't have a faith. And so let's not be chatty catty. Let's be the one who who goes before the Lord and lays our life before them and trusts Him in the midst of the struggle. The Gospels tell us how Jesus demonstrated this. If you remember, Jesus is uh, arrested and He's dragged into this uh, makeshift trial before the Sanhedrin. And there He's questioned over and over again. and, And they're making all these accusations. And what does Jesus do in the midst of all of it? He just sits there. Doesn't say a word. He's silent. 
fact, the Bible, he's fulfilling scripture. He's like a sheep before its shears is silent, the Bible says. He's just quiet. How, how could you sit there knowing the future, knowing what is coming before you, knowing the cross is ahead of you, knowing the blood that's going to run from your body, the crown of thorns being pressed into your head, a spear being put into your side, knowing that you're going to hang on the cross, and the worst thing of all of it is that the sins of the entire world will be placed upon you, and the second person of the Trinity is going to be separated from the first and the third person Trinity for a short period of time. You're going to be forsaken by the Father, knowing all of that is coming, knowing the anguish he's going to feel in the Garden of Gethsemane as he's crying out before the Father, Father, if there's any other way, take this from me, but not my will, but your will be done. How could he be silent in that midst? It's because he had absolute trust in the Father. Absolute trust in the Father. Moses here tells the people to not fear, but instead to have faith. To trust in God's protection, in other words. See, Moses understood that they could not trust God and at the same time fear their circumstances. Faith and fear cannot live together in the same heart. One will always destroy the other. Your faith has to drive out fear in your life. And if it does not, fear will drive out faith in your life. Third thing I want us to see is this. The natural response of fear is to or the flesh is to fear. The spiritual response of faith is to trust. Thirdly, the divine response of God to faith is to protect. God steps in in our situation. Verse 30, the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Faith is the expression of a transformed heart. God has always, and God simply asked men... And he asked women and children today to simply believe him, to trust his word. If you were to go back to the very beginning, God in the Garden of Eden, he, he creates Adam, he creates Eve from Adam. He says, here's everything that, you, that I've given you. Take, eat, enjoy, have dominion over it all. There's just one thing that you need to trust me on. The tree that's in the center, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, don't eat from it. Just trust me on this. And if they would have trusted him, we wouldn't be in this predicament today. Right? All throughout Scripture, God calls us to be people who would believe His Word. Noah was asked to believe God about the flood. Noah, there's going to be rain that's going to come for 40 days and 40 nights. I need you to build this big boat. It's going to take you 100 years. No, I need you to do this. God, I've never seen rain. I'm nowhere near an ocean, and yet you're calling me to build a huge ship, and I'm not even a carpenter. No, I need you to trust me on this. You come to Abraham, God says, Abraham, I want you to get up from Ur. I want you to go to a land to the east or to the west, a land that I've not even told you about. I just need you to trust me on this. The Bible says he trusted him. All throughout Scripture, we see this. Israel here is asked to believe in God's protection in the face of Pharaoh. And Israel did as Moses directed them. They faith into God. Now, I think Moses had to, to drag them into this, obviously, because their first initial reaction was to fear. But they believed in Moses. They said, all right, Moses, we'll take you at your word. We'll stand firm. We'll fear not. And we'll watch. And what happened? God protected them. God provided for them. 
And so we come to verse 30, and they see that God's uh, power is greater than that of Pharaoh's. And so their faith that they demonstrated into God, their trust in his word spoken by Moses, resulted in God's protection over their lives. And today, there are times for us that feel a whole lot like the scene here in Exodus 14. We're journeying with God, we're following his leadership and calling, and as we follow his leading, as we rejoice in his, in his provision for our life, we all of a sudden find ourselves on the shore of the Red Sea of life, and the enemy is attacking. It seems unfair to go through such difficulties, but we need to remember that those difficulties teach us about God's faithfulness, and they help us to grow in our faith. So how do you handle life's difficulties today? What is your typical response? Are you one of fear? Are you one of trust? How do you handle life's difficulties? When they slam against your plans, how do you respond? Do you become fearful? Do you become anxious? Or do you trust the Lord to be your shelter and your refuge? I believe one of the greatest misconceptions people have about the Christian life is the idea that everything in life gets easier when you follow Jesus. If you follow Jesus faithfully for any amount of time whatsoever, you know that to not be true. In fact, Jesus said this, in the world you will have trouble. Fear not, I have overcome the world. Right? There's going to be hardship, there's going to be tribulation, there's going to be difficulties, but we have a God who is victorious over it all, and he will be victorious for us. This is true throughout the entire Bible as we look at men and women of faith. I mean, think about David. He's a, this young shepherd boy. He loves the Lord. He loves the Lord's word. He seeks to, and striving to be faithful. And one day, minding his own business, taking some lunch to his brothers who were at the battle scene, he walks up there and he hears Goliath taunting the armies of the living God. And all of a sudden, this teenage boy who's killed the lion and the bear, but he's never faced a Goliath, standing face to face with a giant and he conquers him you think about other people in the bible you think about if you're reading with us chronologically this year this past week we've read there in daniel about meshach shadrach and abednego they are these three men who who were seeking and striving to be faithful in the empire of persia as jews exiles from their land them along with daniel and they begin to to commit themselves to prayer doing what they've always done, to be faithful, God-fearing Jews, even though it's against the law, they're going to still remain committed to prayer, and it led them to the fiery furnace. If you look there in Daniel 3, I believe, Nebuchadnezzar comes, or the, whoever the king is, I think it's Nebuchadnezzar, comes before them and says, guys, you, you, you've got to do what the, what the law says. And they says, whether it's right or wrong, we're not going to do this. Our God is more than capable of saving us in the furnace. But even if he doesn't, we're still not going to bow our knees. We're going to be faithful. We're going to be committed to our God. You come to Daniel a couple chapters later. When he's faced with the lion's den, Daniel didn't shrink back in fear. He didn't crumble in his spirit. No, Daniel remained steadfast in his faith. And he knew that God was more than able to shut the lion's mouth. And as they thrust him into the lion's mouth, he was petting the kitties all night long, cuddling up with them. They're purring in his ear. I mean, it was a great old night until the next morning he was lifted out and those suckers were thrown in. Faithfulness is what God calls us to be about. In each of these situations, and we can name many others, 
these men desired to know and to follow God. They faithed into God, and it was the Lord who put them in turbulent and impossible circumstances. They all responded in faith. They didn't fear the difficulties. They didn't even fear the death that awaited them. They only feared God. They trusted Him to protect their lives. And so this morning, do you trust the Lord? Do you really trust the Lord? Or do you only trust the Lord when you're in control? Let me give you some insight. That's not trusting the Lord. That's trusting in yourself. And I believe one of the reasons that God brings the storm of life is to help you understand that you can't control anything. Absolutely nothing in your life you control, can you control. Think about this past week. This, this day, last week, we all were sitting, well, not all of us. I, I, I was a little bit of a negative Nelly last week. I was like, it ain't coming here. It's not, we, we don't need to do a lot of stuff, but you know, we, we did a lot of stuff to prepare. <laughs> um, but last week, this was the conversation everybody's having. Florence is coming, man. We've got to get prepared. It's going to be wiping us out. And it did go south and wipe a bunch of people out. But we were all thinking it's coming here. People were predicting it coming here. Uh, but what happened? We were shown that we as humans, even in all of our technology, have no control over anything in life, and we barely can even predict most things in life. Meteorologists are wrong more than 50% of the time. If it's any other career in, the, in all of mankind, they would lose their jobs, but we understand that there's nothing we can do about the weather. We're in control of nothing in our lives. Sure, do we plan? Yes. Should we plan? Yes. But the Lord is in control. So this morning, do you really trust Him? Here's how you know how you trust Him. How do you respond to disappointment in your life? What's your response when you get that bad report from the doctor? I'm not saying you shouldn't cry, you shouldn't be in despair, you shouldn't, uh, you know, if you get that report, cancer. Of course, that's, that's a shot to the heart. I, I understand that. When my, my friends, the Griggs, learned that their son had relapsed for the third time, and, and now it's terminal. There's nothing else that they can do for Titus. I can't even imagine the anguish as a parent that you must feel there. But you don't lose faith. You understand that this life is just a short, brief blip on the radar of all of eternity. So we're not living for this life. We're living for the next life. And so how do you respond to disappointment? How do you respond to hardship? How do you respond to, to the redirecting of your, bl- your life as God brings and slams the storms against you? How do you respond when you have no control and your abilities cease. Do we trust the Lord? This morning, we're going to move into a time of invitation, a time of response. And here's a couple of things I want us to do. If you're a follower of Jesus and you really struggle with faith, just really trusting and, and handing the things of life over, you're probably in good company. There's probably a lot of us like that. All right? First of all, you need to understand that's a natural thing, it's part of growth. But you want to learn to become a faithful person. And so this morning, I just want you to just take a moment as we pray and and as we sing, just ask the Holy Spirit, God, teach me. Where am I at? How is my response to you? What's my level of faith? And whatever he's leading you to do, do it. Do it. If he says, man, you you don't trust me at all, then take that and own that. Say, look, God, 
forgive me for my lack of faith. Give me faith. I want to trust you. I want to believe you. I want to follow you. This morning, sometimes the reason we don't trust God is because we don't know God. And there may be some of you like that here. Your name might be on the roll of our church membership. Might be might have been here for years, but really that doesn't matter. The only membership role that really matters in all of eternity is the one that will be called up yonder as we sing back in the old days. When the role is called up yonder, the name that's written in the book of life. And so this morning, if you realize I'm not in relationship with Jesus, I've never faithed into him and trusted him for my salvation, that's the most important and the first decision you need to make. So we're going to stand in just a moment. We're going to sing and we're going to respond. And so if God is leading you, maybe you need to come out here and pray. Maybe you need to grab somebody and say, hey, come pray with me. Maybe you just need to sit there in the quietness of your seat and just say, God, show me where I'm at. I want to be a, a, a follower of Jesus who believes you, who trusts you. I don't want to be a casual Christian drifting along the waves of life. I want to be rock solid in my faith, in my dependence, in my belief. Lord Jesus, this morning, would you take your word and press it upon our hearts? God, it could be this morning that as we've looked at this passage, one of the things that's, that's popped out the most in, in some people's hearts and minds is that they're not the Moses in the picture. They're definitely not God in the picture. They're those faithless Israelites. And because things got a little hard, they began to fear. Their fear led to complaining and griping and murmuring and wanting to go back. God, you've never called us to go back. You've called us to press on. So I pray today that as you show us where we're at spiritually, that you would help us to Confess sin that's needed to be confessed. Repent of that sin and turn from it. And begin to walk in greater faithfulness. Lord, I pray for that senior adult man. I pray for that teenage girl. I pray for anybody in between that's not in relationship with you today. God, they've never had a genuine conversion experience where they said, Lord God, I've sinned. And my sin separates me from you. But I know that you've died. You've shed your precious blood. Forgive my sin so that I can have the life that you created me for. Lord, I pray this morning that that would take place, that this would be the day of salvation for them. God, bless us. Help us to be obedient and responsive. May this church this morning have ears to hear what the Spirit is speaking to us. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.